Our God and Father, Lord, we rejoice that you are God. Lord, that you are in heaven, that you hold the whole world in your hands. Oh, Lord, we praise you, and we worship your holy name this morning. We recognize that you are the almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth, that, Lord, we are the sheep of your pasture. Behold, you have made us with your own hands. Oh, Lord, we were made by you for your purpose. And we do recognize this morning that you hold our very life in your hands. <coughs> that, God, you give us our next breath. Oh, Lord, you are the great sustainer of life. Lord, you even hold the planets where they orbit. You cause the rain to fall and the wind to blow. By your providence, Lord, you are bringing the world to the expected end for which you created it. And we rejoice in the thought, God, that you are in control. That, Lord, even though evil may seem to prevail, as time goes on and it waxes worse and worse, we look to the soon coming of our Lord Jesus who will come and arrest evil. He will, in fact, destroy it and banish it from your creation. Oh, Lord, we look eagerly to that day, that day when there will be peace on earth and your will will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, give us strength in our faith and, and, and uh, give us hope, God, that we might uh, continue to be focused on that great day and that, Lord, during these days on earth, you would use us for your purpose. That, God, we would each day arise and awake and thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Lord, that we would be ever mindful of the precious blood of Jesus, which has given us forgiveness of sins, canceled the debt of all of our sins, and washed us clean. God, we thank you for such wonderful news. Lord, strengthen us that we might continue to trust day by day in all that you are and all that you have done for us. We thank you for your divine love by which you have accepted us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have seen fit to call us to yourself and draw us by your mighty power and open our eyes to the truth. And so, Lord, we long to be united with you and we pray, come quickly. We honor you and we bless you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to look into your word this morning. We thank you for the freedom that we have to freely proclaim it in this place on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, I want to uh, thank our brother Ryan for filling in for me last week. Ryan does an excellent job with the scripture, doesn't he? And uh, it's always a, a, a amazing encouragement to uh, hear our brother teach and to see his faith growing, even as the rest of us. Amen? Amen. And uh, I want to thank you, Ryan. Thank you, brother. By the way, I was away hunting elk <laughs> in the woods. And uh, the elk have nothing to fear when I'm in the woods. So... Usually for me, it's just it's all about wandering around in the trees with my smoke pole, and and, uh, and then I get my fix and come home, and we're good. So uh, <laughs> that's why they call it hunting. <laughs> Hunt I did. My family will go hungry this year, but. <laughs> So uh, I want to continue to wet your whistle 
for the eschatology that we're going to be covering in these books of First and Second Thessalonians, even though we won't get there till chapter four, uh, for the most part. Um, I want to remind you about the preparatory reading, and I want to I want to ha- ask you and encourage you again to go and read these if you haven't read them, and if you have read them, I want to encourage you to go read them again. And to have clearly in view what each one of these texts is basically saying in and of itself. And and what eschatological events are recorded in those texts. So that when you look at it, there's a clear vision in your mind of what that that text is talking about. Okay, Because these, these things are very important when it comes to understanding what the Bible has to say about the end of the world. Right? And what the Bible has to say about... The afterlife in general, and and uh, specifically in regard to what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ, and the establishment of His kingdom on the earth. The Bible has a lot to say about it, and these texts are some places where many of those things are recorded, and we're going to be going over that in detail. And uh, some some events have transpired recently that have convinced me that I need to spend even maybe a little bit more time than I had planned going over these things and what they are and, and, and really so what I've decided to do is between the books of first and second Thessalonians I'm gonna take a break for just a few weeks and I'm gonna give you a brief but comprehensive overview of of Bible eschatology and uh which is going to include a lot of these texts. And uh but it's clear to me as I talk to more and more Christians that there really has been very little teaching on these things in the church by and large, and that people really don't know what the text of Scripture says about a lot of these different events. They may have heard of you know, things like the Antichrist or the Second Coming or the Millennial Kingdom or, 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 or even things just like heaven and hell. Uh, it became really clear to me this week through some conversations I had with different Christians that their understanding of what the Bible actually says about heaven and hell is, is rather limited. And so some of those things I want to be able to point out for you, those are all topics in eschatology, by the way. And uh, so I just wanted to be able to uh, give you some fundamental building blocks when we start throwing around all these eschatological terms that you know where I'm coming from, specifically where in the text of Scripture those things are found so that we can really have a, a better view. So that hopefully... By the time we get through these series of lessons, you, you, you will have had a pretty good overview of, of Bible eschatology. And you'll know, for the most part, what the Bible says about the end of time, or the end of times, or the last days, or the eschaton, or whatever terms you want to use to describe it. Okay? So uh, I'm looking forward to that, but I want, to, I want even now for you to keep reading this stuff and keep focused on it, because when we get there... The water gets real deep real fast, and there's a, it's, eschatology is a very complex topic, and it can be very confusing if you, because there's so many different views, uh, it can be very confusing what, what, what uh, the Bible is actually saying about specific things, okay? So I just want you to have as much Bible knowledge as possible when we go to tackle those things, okay? All right. So then, uh, with that... Uh, we're back into the text of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1. And the last time we got together, we talked uh, from verse 1, uh, which says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And so just briefly, uh, a little bit of review. When Paul says that he's writing to the church, I reminded you that that term church is actually the Greek word that means the called out ones. Amen? Amen. Which presupposes that there is a caller, right? And one who is called, namely those who gather in the church. They are the called out ones. They've been called out by an act of God's free grace. God is the one who has called the church together in Christ. And so, if you will, Christian faith is referred to in the New Testament as a calling from God. And, uh, if you will, that understanding is inherent in the term church. That's what the church is. 
And that's what the church means. It's the people of God who have been called out by him, specifically for assembly in him or in his name, which is what Paul says. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we talked about this thing we call a divine mystery, right? Which is what we call union with Christ or union with God. And the fact of the matter is Christians are spoken of in the New Testament as being united with God and with Christ. They are in him and he is in them. Those are the terms that the Bible uses to describe Christians. So it is that we enter into this union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. And we, therefore, share in this mystery or this divine relationship that the Bible refers to as being in him. We are in him and he is in us. As the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul says in Acts 17, he says, the God who created the world and everything in it, right, does not dwell in temples made by hands, right, as though he needed anything, for he himself gives life and breath to all things. Amen? And so God doesn't dwell in temples. We don't go and bow down at some idol, which is a representation of God. In fact, God said in his great commandments, right, thou shalt not have any graven image of anything on heaven, in heaven above or on earth below, because there's nothing you can make in the creation that would represent the almighty God. Amen? Amen. Those are all things that he created. God is infinitely greater than everything that he created. And there is no representation that we can make of him whereby we could go and say, this is God or this is like God. Amen? <clears throat> In fact, God is so uh, uh, transcendent, right, that uh, it would be very difficult to even begin to comprehend the character and the nature of the Almighty God being a finite creature like we are. Amen? So God is high and lifted up. He's far above all that we can possibly imagine. Amen? And so it is that um, he cannot be represented in some temple with some statue or with something made by the hands of men. Right? Instead, through the course of time and, and after the time then of the cross... God had provided a way whereby he would come to live inside of our souls. And at the same time, he says that we live in him, just like the church of the Thessalonians, who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is this mystery that the Bible speaks of. We are in God and he is in us. Amen? And so many times in the New Testament, uh, the, 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 uh, the Christians are referred to as those who are in Christ. Amen? And so we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. That is, if we've been born again by the Holy Spirit, right? Through belief in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Through faith in him. Amen? Okay. So then, uh, that brings us to uh, verses 2 and 3 which read like this, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Now you remember that this little Thessalonian church was one that was planted in a, in a real hurry, right? As Paul was traveling through this region of Macedonia, he came to Thessalonica, and he spent three weeks there reasoning in the synagogue, at which time he was run out of town by some angry Jews and a mob from the marketplace. Remember that. And so he ran and fled to Berea, which was about 50 miles away, and he went to the synagogue there and began to preach the same gospel. And it was uh, some short time after that that uh, the angry Jews and the mob from Thessalonica showed up in Berea and ran Paul out of Berea. They were really angry over what Paul had done there in Thessalonica. And um, so uh, this is to say then that the uh, Thessalonian church was a church that was established by the disciple-making efforts of Paul 
in four short weeks of time. And so uh, this is a remarkable thing that this little church was uh, spent so little time in their incubation, and yet they became an example to all the churches in the entire province of Macedonia. And so Paul spends the whole first chapter commending the church for the great things that God is doing in them. Okay? Notice I said for the great things God is doing in them and not the great things they are doing necessarily. Paul doesn't commend men. Instead, he thanks God. Right? And, and this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. You see, Paul's thanking God for what God has done in their church. Paul is, is thanking God for what God has motivated in their hearts through faith. Amen? And this is what the Bible means when it says that all things are done to the glory of God. Amen? We don't walk around patting one another on the back and, yeah. and talking about uh, what great Christian workers we are, right? <laughs> Instead, we kind of humbly mourn together and say... <laughs> Uh, how how uh, glorious it is that God would forgive sinners such as us. Because we all know what great sinners we are. Amen? But what a great Savior Christ is. Amen? He can reach down even as far as I was and save me. Amen? And so we glorify God for his mercy. And then not even that, but the good things he's now working in our heart through faith. The peace and the joy and the love and the thanksgiving and the, and the patience and the, all of the wonderful things that God begins to change our hearts from the inside out as, 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 as Christian life goes. Amen. That we recognize that it's God who is at work in us to produce those good things in us. Amen. And that the good virtue that's in our hearts is something that comes from God. It's something that's working in our hearts and changing and transforming us from that old empty way of life which we used to live before we trusted him. Amen? And so we always want to give God the glory for the things that he's doing in our heart and in our life because he is the ultimate and primary motivator of all of those things. Amen? And so Paul thanks God for what's going on in the Thessalonian church. He says we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. Here we begin to see Paul's great affection for the church and his commendation of God's great work in their hearts. Inherent in his thanksgiving is a recognition that God is the one responsible for their great faith, hope, and love. Thus he is not commending men, but thanking God. For what good virtue do any of us Christians have except that which has been a gift of God's gracious hand, as Calvin writes here, hence, instead of co congratulations, he makes use of thanksgivings, that he may put them in mind that everything in them that he declares to be worthy of praise is a kindness from God. And not only is Paul grateful, but Silas and Timothy as well. He says, we give thanks to God. Now remember, that Paul is kind of writing and representing him and, and, and Silas and Timothy because it was all three of those men who worked to establish this church in Thessalonica. It was all three of them who came and began to meet in the synagogues. And, and even though Paul was uh, uh, the primary teacher and preacher there, Timothy and Silas were working overtime with Paul. Uh, seeking to make disciples in this church. And so Paul says here that we give thanks to God. And when he says we, he means me and Silas and Timothy. We give thanks to God always. Notice here he says they give thanks always and also for all of you. Think about that. Paul says that we give thanks always for all of you. Not only are they thankful to God for the amazing testimony of this young church, but have in mind a constant offering of thanksgiving to God for each and every one of the Thessalonian believers. You know, this is the glorious thing about Christian life and Christian love in the church. You know, it's every single person is vital. Every single person that meets in the family of believers is beloved by God. Amen? And God is not partial to any more than the other. Amen? 
We've all been united in the fact that we've been forgiven of our sins and washed clean by the blood of our Lord Jesus and given the hope of heaven all together. We all possess the same promise. We all possess the same righteousness who is Jesus our Lord. Amen? And so it's not based on how good of a Christian we are. The love of God for us in the church is not based on how good of a Christian we are, but how great of a Savior Jesus is. And how great of a work he has done in justifying us before God. Amen? And so we, we all in the sight of God have equal worth. We all in the sight of God have equal value. We are all included in the beloved. As Paul writes in, in Ephesians 1, right? He says we are accepted in the beloved. And family, this is to be our attitude toward one another. That we give God thanks always for every one of us. Amen? We're all united together in the faith, and we're all beloved members of one family. That's how Christians are presented in the scripture. Amen? And every single one of us is part of the church being called out by God, and every single one of us is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So we shouldn't make distinctions one to another. Amen? By race or gender or any. But we are included together by faith in the love of God. Amen? In the church of God, in the assembly of the righteous, in the congregation of those who have been forgiven of their sins and granted the righteousness of Christ. Amen? So this is seen in the words of Paul, where he says, we give God thanks for all of you, right? And uh, what what a glorious truth that is. Their love for them is a sincere and genuine love for the people themselves. And you know what? <clears throat> Paul writes to them. He doesn't overlook them as individuals. He says you're all beloved by God. And every one of you, he says, is dear to us. So that we are always giving God thanks for you. And we're always making mention for all of you in our prayers. And God writes to every one of these Thessalonian Christians through Paul. And says, I love you. You belong to me. You're dear to me. And people are important. Amen? And God help us to be aware of people that are in our life, people that are around us. People are important. You know what? You might be busy. You might have a lot of circumstances going on in your life, just like I do. And at times we get overwhelmed by our circumstances, and you know what we begin to do? We begin to overlook people. And we get in a hurry, and we bark at people, and because we're flustered over our circumstances, and you know what? What's really important is the people that are around us. And how often I need to be reminded of this. Amen? That people are what's important. Would you agree? People are far more important than telephones. That's what I do. I sell telephones. (laughs) Right? And how I constantly need to be reminded of this. Amen? Are you with me? Well... It is this love for them that drives Paul and Silas and Timothy to pray for the church as they are making mention of them in their prayers. Notice what Paul says. We're always praying for you. We're always praying for all of you. It reminds me of a statement in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. He says, always keep on praying for all the saints. Amen? Your prayer list shouldn't be too short plenty of things and plenty of people to pray for. Amen? Amen. And this is what Paul does. And so then, notice here the heart of a devoted thanksgiving and prayer of a devout and dedicated Christian leader for God's people. He says, I'm always making mention of you in my prayers. And he says there, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. As Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians, he is constantly bearing in mind the great things God is doing among them. And this is no small thing, for the apostle here speaks of the great wonder of the Christian life. It is a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that is steadfast. When he refers to their work of faith, he undoubtedly speaks of the fruit that their faith produces not in any way to be misconstrued as faith being some kind of work. He says the work of faith, or if you will, the work that their faith is producing. He's bearing in mind 
the great things that's happening because they believe in the Lord Jesus. Their work of faith, he calls it. The Greek word itself for faith is the word pistis, which refers to a strong moral conviction, assurance, or belief and or fidelity. Elsewhere is Paul's teaching. He makes it very clear that salvation comes by faith alone, the great doctrine of sola fide, and is apart from any works, that is, salvation cannot be earned, but is the free gift of God's grace received through faith. Now let me make my point clear here. What Paul is saying is, is he is not describing faith as a work. He's not saying faith is something that you uh, perform of your own innate goodness. Faith is not something that you work, okay? Rather, when he says the work of your faith, he's talking about the fruit that's produced because they believe. The two are very distinct. That is the faith and the works that come from the faith. Are you with me? And so it is with salvation. Let me tell you. We're not saved because we're good Christians. We're not saved because we are a missionary to Africa. We're not saved because we, you know, uh, uh, are a Sunday school teacher. We're not saved because we do some good thing that we perceive to be a good Christian thing to do, right? We're saved rather how? By faith in Christ. Amen? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? And so Paul is not trying to describe faith as some kind of a work here. You can see it clearly in the verse. He's saying your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Amen? And so just to make this clear, I want to show you from other passages in Paul where he speaks very specifically about the correlation between faith and works, that it's not faith that saves or justifies us in the sight of God, but instead rather, I'm sorry, it's not works that save us or justify us in the sight of God, but it is instead faith. As he writes in Romans 3, verses 20 through 24, and he says there, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now you see there Paul says it's not by the works of the law. Instead, it's the law that shows us that we're sinners. Amen? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Instead, he says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. believe. Amen? It's not of works. It's of believing. It's of having faith in what Christ has done. Amen? We don't earn our salvation. We've already blown it by our sin. Amen? And I, I make this point frequently. If you repented today changed your whole life and began a sinless life, which isn't going to happen, by the way, <laughs> from this day forward, what would you do to atone for all of the sins that you had committed previously? Are you with me? Of which one is worthy of eternal death? And, and so the whole issue is we're not saved by converting from uh, sinning and doing what is right. Rather, we're saved by trusting in the thing that Christ has done to pay the penalty for our sins. We have faith that Christ died as an atonement of sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. And that through believing in him, God imputes to us Christ's perfect righteousness. You understand? There's two things that happened in the life and death of Jesus. In the death of Jesus, he paid the penalty of our sins. In the life of Jesus, he lived the perfect righteousness of God according to the law, and he imputes that to us so that now God sees us as if we had obeyed his entire law. Amen? But family, we haven't. We haven't done that. On the contrary, we have deserved death and hell. Right? So it's not according to our works, but it's according to the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is the glorious good news of the gospel. That's what we're trusting in. We're trusting in the objective merit that Jesus himself earned for us in the sight of God. Amen? Then what happens is because of the great work of faith that we have, that great trusting in Christ, we're now motivated then to repent of our sins and to do what is right. The last thing we want to do is offend God who became a man and died in our place. Now our hearts are sensitive to the fact that it's our sins that put Jesus on the cross. Okay, Now we're motivated by a, a grateful, thankful, loving um, <clears throat> motivation toward Christ who died for us. The last thing we want to do as Christians is sin against him. Amen? And so this is the basis for our repentance. We turn away from our sins and we begin to follow Christ because we love him and are grateful for the great thing that he has done for us that we're trusting in by faith. Amen? That's the distinction between faith and works, family. Or we could just read Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Amen? Amen. Could the New Testament be any more clear about the nature of justification in the sight of God? It's just crystal clear. Would you agree? Yes. Okay, and that's just two short passages. (laughs) When the New Testament is full of them. Amen? Okay, so then, Paul's work of faith, (laughs) okay, is not to be misconstrued as some kind of a human work that these Christians are doing in order to be acceptable to God or saved. You with me? Salvation comes by faith, and when you have this true saving faith, guess what? It produces works. In other words, we say, faith works. You with me? People who really believe in Christ and really believe in the glorious things that he's done and who've really been born again by the Holy Spirit, they want to live their life working and serving Christ. Amen? And, and it's, it's the natural fruit of, of believing in Christ. It's the natural fruit in thinking uh, uh, and trusting in all that Christ is and has done for us. Amen? We love because he first loved us. And in the Thessalonian church... That love is a laboring love. It's a, it's a working faith and a laboring love. Amen? So let's talk about what that means. Therefore, this work of faith is the work that their faith produces. That is, the glorious worship of God that is now being manifested in and by them who have repented from those vile sins of pagan idolatry and turned to God from idols, verse 9, to serve a living and true God. Now remember that these Thessalonians, here comes Paul, preaching through Thessalonica. He's there for four weeks. This church is established. And guess what? These pagan peoples are called out of this idolatry that they have in this Greek society. We're talking first century Greece here, right? <laughs> and, and they have turned from this pagan idolatry. Now, a little later in our teaching, we're going to talk about what that is. But let me tell you, there are some vile practices associated with being a normal Greek citizen in the city of Thessalonica. Okay? There was, theirs was a very wicked and immoral culture. Okay? Much like our culture is becoming. Right? Of which we are continually repulsed of and by. Right? But this, this culture in first century Greece, let me tell you, they were, they were swallowed in it. Okay, sexual immorality was a very public thing in, in first century Greece. Okay, and of course we know that that's an abhorrent thing to God, right? It's listed right in his commandments. And, and the, the point is, is specifically that these Christians that got saved are Christians who turned their back on all that it meant to be a pagan idol worshiper. And they became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and imitators of Jesus and Paul. <laughs> you understand? They are them who were forgiven much. You know, it's kind of like when you see a guy that, you know, gets saved in jail. You know, a guy that's lived a really hard life, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, they, they get saved. And, man, them, them guys come out of that place and they are like a fireball. 
You understand what I'm saying? Like Jesus said, him who is forgiven much loves much, mm-hmm. right? And, and the point is, is that in many cases we see Christians that are like this. They get saved out of a real difficult and, and, and trying life, and, and uh, they're, they're just on fire. They make a 180, you know? And, it, and it's not necessarily like some of us who grow up in a Christian home and not even exactly sure when we got saved, you know? But we've just always loved God and always loved Jesus and always been a good Christian. And, and that's a glorious and wonderful testimony, right? But when you see what happens from somebody that gets saved out of, out of the midst of, of really being involved in the depth of worldly culture, right? You can see the remarkable change in their life. That's what the testimony of these Thessalonian Christians look like. Because there wasn't any good Christian families in Thessalonica prior to this. You with me? Christianity is not even on the map yet. Right? Uh, now, many of these were God-fearing Greeks, and so, if you will, there were, there were many in the Thessalonian church who were already people that were of some moral stature before God, having been following that. This, the text tells us in Acts 17 that many of them were God-fearing Greeks. Remember that? But for the most part, these Gentile Christians who are being saved in these places like Thessalonica and all through the uh, uh, provinces, provinces in, in Greece were being saved out of pagan idolatry. And as we will learn, uh, it is uh, an amazing vice that these people are caught in and they're turning from. And so when Paul thinks about their faith, man, he's thinking, man, these guys, man, they turn their back on, on, on some amazing things. And they are an amazing case of, of what happens when God works faith in somebody's heart. And, and so he, he describes that as their work of faith and their labor of love, right? And later on in verse 9, he says that they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They quit serving lifeless, dead idols through these wicked, demonic practices that are involved in pagan idolatry. And they turn from that to serve God, to follow God, to love God, right? To go out and to preach the gospel, to, to go out and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins that's available in Christ. Amen? And how they turned from serving these dead idols to serving a living and true God. Amen? That's how Paul describes their conversion. This work of faith, then, is the obedience and service to God that Christian faith produces in those who are in Christ. And this he also identifies as a labor of love. For what is it that drives a Christian to serve and obey God except their great love for him and for Christ in response to the wonderful things he has accomplished on their behalf? What is it that motivates Christians to serve God? What is it that motivates Christians to come week in and week out and lift their hands and their voices and sing praises unto God? What is it that motivates a Christian to go around and tell people they need to repent of their sins and turn to Christ? What is it that motivates a Christian to preach the gospel even in the midst of persecution? What is it that motivates a Christian to be burned at the stake and yet will, will not renounce their faith in Christ even unto death. What is it that motivates a Christian to work and serve and obey God in all that he has commanded us? I'd like to suggest that it's a love. If it's motivated properly, it is a love and a devotion to God. Amen? Amen. We love him because he first loved us. And in the Thessalonian church, let me tell you, it was a laboring love. That's how Paul described it. Christian life is a constant labor, but it is a labor that is motivated by tremendous love, both love for God and our neighbor. Indeed, did our Lord tell us that the entire Old Testament was summed up in these two commandments. In Matthew 22, verses 36 and through 40. Teacher, they come to Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So here comes Jesus, right? First century. Christianity hasn't been established yet. No New Testament, no Apostle Paul yet, right? And they come to him and they say, Lord, in the whole Old Testament, in the whole Bible that they had at that time, right? 
What was the greatest thing God ever said? Jesus answers quickly. Amen. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He says, this is the great and foremost commandment. Amen. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? As I often tell you, it's summed up in the two tables of the law, the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's got two tablets, right? Two tables. And on each one is written the commandments. And the first table is written, the first four commandments would deal with God's relation, man's relationship to God. And the second uh, table has six commandments that are therein written uh, man's relationship to man, right? And when you sum up the whole law, okay, the whole law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. When you sum up the Ten Commandments, you have two tables of the law. How are they summed up? Right here by our Lord. The first and second commandment in his mind, right? Love God, love your neighbor. He says, listen, on these two commandments depend the whole Bible. The whole scripture depends on these two commandments. Let me, Jesus says, let me interpret the whole Bible for you. Here it is. Love God and love your neighbor. Therefore, what should be the motivation of serving God or worshiping God? Love. And and what a thing it is for God to command us to love him. Teacher, what are the great commandment in the law? Right? God has commanded us to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Amen? Amen. And in loving God, we find the great purpose for which we were made. Mm -hmm. And we find the great fulfillment of our soul. (coughs) Amen? And when we spend our days wandering in the trackless waste, wandering away from God and pursuing every other thing in the world, trying to find fulfillment, how miserable and empty our life becomes. Amen? Until we finally turn... To our maker, the one who made us, the one who gives and sustains life. And we begin to realize the very purpose for which we were made, to love God, to honor him and bless his name. Isn't he worthy? If God gives us life, isn't he worthy to be thanked for the gift of life? Amen. Much less a plate full of food and a roof over your head and a shirt on your back. Amen. Not to mention the manifold rich blessings that God pours out on us. Amen? It is this working faith and laboring love of the Thessalonian Christians that Paul is so thankful for. Indeed, it is the evidence of God's calling them out of darkness of the world into his glorious church. Concerning Paul's esteem of these Christians, Calvin notes, and unquestionably, the more that one excels in piety and other excellences, so much the more we ought to hold him in regard and esteem. For what is more worthy of love than God? Hence, there is nothing that should tend more to excite our love to individuals than when the Lord manifests himself in them by the gifts of his spirit. In other words, as you see somebody becoming more and more like Christ, that the character of that person is becoming more and more amiable and acceptable and worthy of praise. As your life is being more and more conformed into the image of Christ and you become more and more like Jesus, let me tell you, what we want to do is commend you. You know, when, when you think of, 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 uh, of good people, you know, we often use this term, yeah, he's a good man or she's a good woman, or, that's, a, that's a good brother, Right? We know, and we usually get corrected. There's only one who's good. (laughs) Those people who actually read their Bible. (laughs) No, I'm teasing. But, you know, what do we mean when we say that about somebody? You know, they're a good man. You know, that's a good Christian. They have a good heart. You know, what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is they're mimicking God. They're acting like God. They act like they're in God and God is in them. They're good. Amen? which is one of the foremost attributes of God. Amen? He's good. In fact, the name God is derived from the term good. Maybe you knew that. Maybe you didn't. But that's what it means. What is good? Well, God is good. Amen? God is the definition of what is good. And so, you know, here's what's going on in these Thessalonians. 
Here they are, these pagan idolaters, steeped in these immoral practices. Along comes the gospel message, and God calls them out of darkness. The next thing you know, their life is being transformed and turned on side of its head. They've turned their back on their sins, and they begin to follow Christ. Now their pursuit is love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness and humility and compassion. Now all the fires of Christian virtue are burning in their heart. It's a glorious thing to see what happens in Christian life and how we get transformed by God. Amen? Amen. And this is what Paul is, is recognizing here. He says, to you Thessalonian Christians, man, are we thankful to God. What are we thankful to God for? This mighty, awesome power that has come into your life and began to change you so that now you have a working faith, a laboring love, and a steadfast hope in the soon coming return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, and man, you guys haven't been quiet about it. Right? Verses 5 through 10, he's telling them that their gospel message has gone out from this little four-week-old church and been preached in the entire province of Macedonia and Achaia. It's an amazing thing that happened there. And this Paul writes to commend them that they're actually uh, uh, obeying and serving and following God. But in so doing, he's thanking God for the great thing that God has done in them. As Calvin wrote here, in other words, the more we become like Christ through faith, the more worthy of high esteem we become, having taken on the very character and nature of God. Christian virtue is a glorious thing. It is our pursuit and the longing of our hearts to be like Christ. It is this piety or virtue that we work and labor to possess and to manifest, and this to the glory and honor of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice then that Christian faith produces work, that is also described as labor. This work is not what brings salvation to us, but is the product or fruit of the life of one who is saved. True saving faith produces works that verify the reality of salvation, as this is one of the great purposes for which we were saved, so that God may be glorified in our service and obedience to him. This is very clear in the teaching of the apostles. So, for example, Paul, in other places, tells us that our faith works. For instance, he describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that, what, grace and faith, are not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Right? But look what he goes on to say. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's saying, look, one of the whole reasons that God saved you was to turn you from a life of pagan sinful idolatry to a life of good works, that you might go out and love your neighbor, right? That you might go out and stop defrauding your brother. Instead, that you might humble yourself and serve him and love him and care for him and make peace and do those things that good Christians ought to do. Amen? And more than that, that you would begin to worship and serve God. That you would begin to glorify God for who he is and look to him for your blessing and trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him so that he will make your path straight. Amen? That you might see yourself in reality as you really are in relation to the God who made you and who sustains your life. Amen? And, and uh, Peter writes in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Look what he says. As each one has received a special gift... Now, how many each ones do we have here? We got each ones, right? We've got all of you, right? All those people I were telling you that were important. Look what Peter says. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. You get that? Employ it in serving one another. You see, faith works and love labors. How? in serving one another, in being hospitable, in having a fervent love one for another. Amen? Amen. 
He says, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. You see what Paul says? He says, look, I want you, um, Peter, he says, I want you to be fervent in your love for one another. I want you to be hospitable to one another. And as you've received gifting from God, I want you to employ it in serving one another and caring for one another and ministering to one another. You know, that's what uh, serving and ministry, that's the same word. That's what a minister is. A minister is a servant, right? You remember Jesus was in the in the desert fasting for 40 days and he was done, he was beat, he was shot. You know what it says about the angels? They came and they ministered to him. You know, they came and they served him, they helped him, they healed him, they cared for him, right? Just like I see y'all doing when we have people that are hurting among us, amen? Isn't it a glorious thing to serve one another, right? But look what Paul uh, Peter says is the motivation in this in verse 11. He says, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You know what happens when we look and we see uh, Christians gathering around to love and care for somebody who's hurting or, or going through a difficult trial? You know what we see? We see the lives of people whose hearts have been transformed by the glorious grace of God, whose sins have been forgiven, and now all they want to do is love and care for people. And they spend their life doing that. They spend their life loving the church and serving the church and caring for the church, as well as their fellow man. Amen? Their life is now no longer characterized by anger and backbiting and, and jealousy and hatred and, and cussing and all of those things. Now their life is, 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 is moving in the direction of serving and loving and making peace and speaking blessing and being a blessing to all of those who are around us. You know? Not being a grumpy bear. You with me? I mean, haven't you had enough of being a grumpy bear? Am I stepping on some toes? <laughs> no, I mean, really. I mean, really. You have nothing better to do but to complain about the bad providence that God has poured out on you. You with me? Be amazing what would happen if you turned some of that grumpiness into thanksgiving. And get a new outlook on life. Because if you got what you deserve, let me tell you, you'd have something to be grumpy about. You with me? So, so God help us. God help us to be uplifting. God help us to be encouraging. God help us to be serving and ministering and loving and caring for one another. Amen? These are the great commandments, family. Love God and love your neighbor. Amen? And that's what God specs of his creation. And either you can obey him or you can find yourself the object of his wrath. Amen? You understand what I'm saying? I mean, we do have a great ultimatum. You know there is a judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning when God is going to judge man according to the deeds done in the body. Amen? And either your deeds are going to be the reflection of a great faith that's in your heart. Right? Either your deeds are going to be motivated by a faith that works. Right? And a love that labors, right? Or they're going to be deeds that are entirely opposite of that. One way or the other, we're going to see by the action and the words that you have what's really going on inside your heart. Amen? Amen. They're proof positive of what's going on inside your heart. Boy, it got quiet in here. Listen, let me encourage you. Wherever you fall short in these things, look, it's real simple. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him. And you know what? If you go out from here today and you fail, listen, John says this. He says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? And then when you get washed anew, look. Bask there in the healing forgiveness of God for a little while and think about it, right? And then when you're good and ready, go back out, quit failing, and do what's right. Amen? Get up, dust off, and do what's right. Are you with me? 
not it's not easy. I didn't say it was easy. The most difficult thing you'll do to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. That old man, he's got to die, and you got to put him to death, right? But but listen, all the power and grace of God is there to help us and to change us and to transform us. Amen? And he's doing it from the inside out. And that's why now, even now, you're longing to do what is right. As I tell you these things, you're longing to be like Jesus. You want to do the right thing. You want to glorify God with your life. Amen? And that's the evidence that God is at work within us. Amen? So uh, what a glorious thing for it is for us to fulfill those things and glorify God. And, and here, Paul, then, he says, not only do they have a faith that works and a love that labors, he says, they have a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Now, Christian faith and love are not complete in and of themselves if not accompanied with hope. Here, notice the steadfastness that the Thessalonians possess as a result of the hope in the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How else can a Christian persevere in this dark world? <clears throat> Excuse me. Apart from the knowing that there will come a day when evil will no longer prevail, but will be destroyed and removed from God's creation. To this we eagerly look, that we might be united to the Father and His Son in His glorious kingdom, where there will never again be hurt and pain, tragedy or loss, and evil will never again show its ugly face forever and ever, world without end. You know, <clears throat> there's a song that uh, the Red Mountain Church does. It's, it's, it goes like this. The Christian's hope can never fail. And I want to tell you something. The hope that you have in Christ is going to soon break into a morning that will never, ever again be shadowed by darkness. You understand what I'm telling you? I'm telling you there is a soon coming day, family, when Christ is going to return, and he is going to eradicate evil from the earth, okay? And it will never again be heard, nor will they harm on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? I, I, I understand... <clears throat> that we have to face evil every day of our life. And it is relentless, man. It's in our own hearts. Good night. I go out of here. I'm constantly tempted to sin against God. You know? But let me tell you something. The promise of the Christian life is this. Jesus is coming again. He's, when he shows up, let me tell you something. He is going to eradicate evil. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to throw the devil in the lake of fire forever. And he's going to remove everything that causes hurt and pain from God's creation. Now, I don't know about you, but i got something to hope for. Amen. If I was hoping for this life, you know where I'm going to wind up in the grave, man? I'm going to wind up with the worms in this body. But see, my hope is something far beyond that. My hope is that Jesus is going to come and transform the body of this death, right? To be like his glorious body. That's what it says in Philippians 3.20, right? And that he's going to change me. I'm going to be changed, right? Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, right? And this mortal shall put on immortality. immortality and this perishable will put on imperishable. imperishable. Right? And we will all, he says, all of us who trust in Christ will be changed. He says, in that day, the saying will be fulfilled, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because in that day, family, we enter into eternal life in the body forever and ever, world without end. Amen? You with me? And this is what I'm saying. This is my hope. This is what I hope in. I'm eagerly looking for this thing. So much so, if you want to kill me, bring it on. What are you going to do? As I often tell you, you're going to usher me through the gates of glory. What have I got to be quiet about? Are you with me? Am I going to offend somebody by telling them Jesus died for their sins? You better believe it. And if it causes them to burn me at the stake, burn so they will. Right? And though that body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Are you with me? You understand? We have hope in something far greater than the reality that's facing the world right now. Amen? That's part of faith. 
We're trusting in some future event that God has promised. Let me read it for you. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Listen. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Amen? What are you trusting in? What are you looking for? Amen? If you hope in this life, family, let me tell you something, man. This body's getting old. It's hurting. You know what? I can't even put the right color socks on in the morning. Much less figure out how to work my life out so that I avoid misery and pain and trouble and suffering. Man, that comes my way no matter what I do in this place. This place is broke. Amen? It's fallen. And God explained it to us. It's going to continue to fall, right? Until he comes again and he transforms it to be what he has intended it to be from all eternity. Amen? Well, this is the motivation of Christian hope and the amazing catalyst to patiently wait for our Lord, even in the midst of much tribulation like these Thessalonians were facing in verse 6. This we see clearly in the Thessalonian church as we recall that they were in a very hostile environment to their newfound faith and being troubled regularly by many in their city. But they not only stood strong in their faith, but they sounded it forth, verse 8, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. The Thessalonians had a great resolve in their faith because they were in the presence of our God and Father. They were living in God and he was living in them. Even though they were vehemently opposed by many, they were busy working and laboring in their faith, waiting with a steadfast resolve being driven by a great hope that they had in the soon coming kingdom of our Lord. They were laying up treasures in heaven, knowing that the Lord would come and his reward for their service and obedience to him would be with eternal treasures that would never fade away. Even as our Lord promised us in Matthew 6:19 through 22, he said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. These Thessalonians then had a faith that works and a love that labors and a hope that was steadfast. All of these they lived out in the presence of God the Father. And so... I would just like to ask you a question as we look at this church that Paul is thanking God for and commending them for what they are. Family, can we look to them and learn from them? Can we just consider ourselves and ask with some introspection, is our faith working? Is our love laboring? Is our hope steadfast? That's what a healthy church looks like. That's what a church that's worthy of God's commendation looks like. Amen? I pray that it's a challenge for you and me as individuals of Christ's church. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this rich section of Scripture that is filled with so much truth. Oh God, we do thank you for the faith that you have called us to, that you have given to us as a gift by your grace. We thank you that we have a mighty Savior, even our Lord Jesus, in whom to trust. And that our faith has indeed found a resting place, God. Oh Lord, we know that Jesus is worthy in your sight. And Lord, we cling to him with all that is within us. 
We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ that you give us through faith. I pray, Lord, that our love would be a laboring love. That, God, we would take up our life from this day forward and serve you and obey you with hearts that love you, God, with everything that is within us. And, God, I pray that on those days when we are greatly discouraged, Lord, that you would give us a patient hope. Give us a hope, Lord, that's fixed firmly on that day when the Lord Jesus will come again and take us to be with himself. And so shall we be with the Lord forever. Oh, God, it is such a light and momentary thing, this life. It blows by like a vapor and then it is gone. God, teach us to number our days aright. Teach us to use these days and redeem the time, God. Speak to each one of our hearts, I pray. We thank you for your loving kindness and your grace to us, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.